This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Of lectures this year on Catholic on the tradition of Catholic peacemaking. This afternoon, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for coming, and we hope that you will look at our schedule and attend the other sessions throughout the year. We believe this is an important part of our, our tradition and uh, our ministry as a Catholic Augustinian University. I'd like to just take a moment to introduce uh, Dr. Anna Moreland of our Humanities Program, who is a, a graduate of Boston College, and uh, would, uh, she will kindly introduce our speaker, who is also from Boston College, so Professor Moreland. I'm just introducing. We are honored today to have with us Dr. Lisa Sol Cahill, the J. Donald Monan Professor of Theology at Boston College. Dr. Lisa Cahill is one of the most important figures in contemporary Catholic theological ethics. She has published over 200 articles and written over 10 books in areas including Catholic social ethics, feminist theology and sex and gender ethics, bioethics, and ethics of war and peace. She is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2008, she was awarded the John Courtney Murray Award by the Catholic Theological Society of America. I met Lisa when I was a graduate student at Boston College in the early 90s, and she has been a role model for me these past few decades. Lisa is a mother of five children, a kind mentor to her graduate students, and a hospitable colleague to the entire theology department. I remember my husband, Michael, asking Larry, Lisa's husband, how does she do it all? And uh, Larry said, just had a snap response, says, oh, that's easy. She doesn't sleep, and she has no downtime. <laughs> I didn't find that particularly comforting at the time. Uh, I'm grateful to you, Lisa, for being a living example to me and to many other graduate students that we can live a fulfilling professional and family life. You make it look easy, except for the no sleeping part. Dr. Cahill will speak to us today on peace building, a practical strategy of hope. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you, Anna. Um, and thank you, Barbara, for inviting me, too. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here and to be able to talk with you. Um, and my topic is Christian peace building. And um, I want to tell you, first of all, what that is and how it evolved and then give some examples. But I'm a theologian, and I'm using the example of Christian peace building to um, ask or, or Maybe I've, you know, I asked for a long time, but maybe to get a better answer to a question about where does hope come from? So we struggle often in circumstances, personal or social, in which there seems to be very little potential for success. And yet people go on and they do have hope. So um, some of the experiences that I've had with Christian peace builders uh, have led me to keep asking that question and uh, to look for some insight and maybe to get a little insight from their example and their words. And I also want to tell you um, two, three things. Uh, so the first is, I recently finished a book, 
and it's just now going into press. And it's a book on theology and ethics in general. But the last chapter is on uh, hope, and it uses the example of Christian peacebuilding, especially the uh, work of some women uh, peacebuilders in Liberia during a time of civil war. Um, but that chapter is not very long because I ran out of room, given the uh, publisher's limits uh, on the amount of material I could have. So I'm still continuing to think about the question of hope and its relation to peace building. And I hope to be able to write some more on this in the future. So the first thing is I'm really coming with some ideas that are not totally formed. And I would love to have people's reactions and recommendations and questions so I can continue to improve my theology of hope in the future. The second thing is that because all of this is in process for me, I spent yesterday and today sort of revising this paper, so now all of the pages are kind of mixed in and upside down, and I've got to keep shuffling through to find the next part, so bear with me. And the third thing is that I had eye surgery this summer, and last time I gave a talk, which was about two weeks ago, I realized I wasn't reading as fluently uh, as I usually do, so if I hold the paper up a little bit or pause, uh, bear with that as well. So let me start then uh, by asking um, the first of my two questions. And the first question is, what is Christian peacebuilding? The second is going to be, what does Christian peacebuilding tell us about the virtue of hope? And especially, where does hope come from when prospects for success seem especially dim? So first of all, though, what is Christian peacebuilding? So up until um, the uh, sort of beginning of the 21st century, really, there were two dominant ways to think about issues of war and peace in the Catholic tradition, and in Christianity in general, I think I would say. And there were two models, and there were kind of opposites. So one was just war theory, and the other was pacifism. And pacifism, of course, was oriented around a way of life that was absolutely committed to nonviolence. And just war theory was committed to the ethical examination of the conditions under which it would be justified to use force or violence, and also criteria for limiting the use of force. So um, I'm going to talk about those just a little bit more, but the point that I want to make is that peace building is really a distinct kind of movement that comes out of both of these, but unites people who originated in both of those camps. And the thing that's really distinctive about peace building is that it's not so much theoretical. Um, it doesn't start um, sort of with a pre-existing moral commitment and then deduce what sort of uh, actions would be acceptable or not. It, it begins much more from within situations of conflict and really asks about how conflict can be reduced or ended or, or avoided in some cases. So just war theory is one of the streams that has fed into the peacebuilding movement. And um, just war theory actually begins from what some have called a presumption against violence and for peace, which is not the same as saying that violence would never be justified, but just that there have to be really good reasons to override the presumption in favor of nonviolence and peace. So just war theory has developed two categories of criteria. I won't go into those in any detail. But one concerns the conditions 
under which it could be justified to go to war, such as last resort, good intention, uh, legitimate authority. And the other set of criteria is around limits on means used in war, such as non-combatant immunity. Um, in recent years, um, there have been some further developments of just war theory in the direction of peacemaking thinking. One of these was the event in the Catholic Church of Vatican II, where uh, Catholic ethics was um, encouraged as a result of one of the documents in particular, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, was encouraged to be more biblical. And if we go to the New Testament on the topic of war and peace, while it doesn't deal so much with war explicitly, we certainly find many texts that counsel nonviolence or even non-resistance, turn the other cheek. So in the U.S. Bishop's uh, encyclical, or, sorry, pastoral letter from 1983, for example, it's called The Challenge of Peace, you've got two halves of it that sort of sit uneasily together. One is about the biblical ideal of peace and shalom, and the other is about uh, criteria for the use and limitation of force, and it was dealing in particular with the Cold War. Uh, and the threat of mutual assured destruction as a deterrence measure. So it's got these, these two um, sort of loyalties, and they are put together, but they're not reconciled all that well. So that was an evolving sort of document. In more uh, recent years, um, we've had an evolution of addition to two more categories of just war thinking, not just right to go to war, use odd... Um, uh, um, <coughs> use ad bellum and write in war, use in bello, but also use ante bellum and use post uh, bellum. So those two categories mean justice before war and justice after war, as well as justice in going and justice in. So when you start to think, or, or the authors that think about justice in going to war, or justice before war or after war, what they're really talking about are conditions of peace. Um, uh, so making sure that war is truly avoided, if at all possible, uh, limiting the measures that are intended to be taken, or after war, making sure they're just accords, uh, making sure that the uh, social infrastructure is also provided for, making sure that there is participatory government and decision making. So all of these considerations head us down the road closer to the new um, movement of just peacemaking um, activity and also theory. From the side of uh, traditional pacifism, so traditional pacifism was really more of a Protestant phenomenon than a Catholic phenomenon, although there have been very famous Catholic pacifists, such as Dorothy Day in the Catholic Worker Movement or the Berrigan Brothers. Um, but religious pacifism or Christian pacifism probably has its strongest roots in the Protestant Reformation or around that time, and some of the historic peace churches, like, like the Anabaptists uh, in the uh, 16th century, and then later the Mennonites and the Amish. And those uh, peace churches tend not really to seek political participation or to influence the whole society, but rather to establish a a distinctive way of life that's a witness. And what we've seen in more recent years is that the historic pacifist thinkers and churches have become more interested in political participation 
and particularly in the issue of global responsibility and the responsibility of we here in the United States to help contribute to conditions of peace worldwide and to refrain from creating conditions that are more likely to lead to violence or to continue violence. So we see that from both of these historic strands, just war theory and um, pacifism, we see a coming together in the middle with uh, a greater interest in peace and the practical conditions of peace across the boards and also a shared interest in um, a social mission of the Christian churches, a political mission and a global mission which involves Christians and Catholics not only with people in their own religious group but with other cultures and also other religions. So religious peace building is very much inter-religious. Peace building brings together traditional just war thinkers or leaders then and pacifists. It focuses in a special way on local communities that are affected by violence. But it also builds networks up and down the social spectrum from grassroots to local to national leaders and governments and even to international, regional, and global actors. It involves both government and civil society, and it works with religious traditions. It also aims to change society and also to work interreligiously. Peace building has a broad focus. What are ways of cooperative social existence that reduce violence or end it? How can reconciliation and social cooperation be fostered even in the midst of ongoing violent conditions? Peace building then is both interpersonal or uh, between small communities or among small communities and it is social. Um, perhaps the most distinctive work of peace building is to alleviate animosities that feed into cycles of violence. So peace building tries to build mutual understanding and social trust in local communities. But peace building also aims to establish, say nationally or internationally, the rule of law and respect for institutions of government. Peace cannot be built where there is an ethos of impunity, for example, uh, um, for those committing war crimes or violating human rights. This demands that at least some perpetrators make restitution or receive punishment and that forceful measures be taken to deter future crimes. All of these, of course, require functional and just social institutions. Accordingly, peace building engages all sectors of society and all the relevant partners people living in the local communities who perpetrate violence or who are directly victimized by it, national elites in the government, business, education, religion, and other sectors, and diplomats, policymakers, scholars, international lawyers, religious leaders, and other <coughs> professionals who often operate at a geographical remove from a specific conflict. What is most striking in accounts of peacebuilding activities, however, is the courage and persistence with which local peacebuilders network in their communities, taking risks to create mutual understanding and solidarity and to stand up and even convert perpetrators. Healthy civil society is essential 
to the possibility and vitality of peace building. This includes neighborhood associations, religious communities, political advocacy groups, parents groups, sports leagues, volunteer organizations, um, and trade, business, and professional associations. The reality of violence and the fear of being its target, of course, destroy these parts of the social fabric, taking away opportunities for people to come together, build relationships, and share their concerns and hopes. So peace builders have to work very, very hard in their communities to build trust and reestablish opportunities for people to come together around shared goals. One of the things that it's very important to highlight is the role of women in peace building. Women are actually among the most active and committed peace builders, perhaps <coughs> because they're often also the mainstay of civic and religious organizations, and women know how to network. Women have been leaders in peacebuilding initiatives in the southern Sudan, in Northern Ireland, and in Liberia. Women are most often responsible for, um, and thus more motivated to secure the safety of, the practical necessities of daily living and of raising a family. These include security for family members and the home. Um, they include food, shelter, and schooling for children. Yet women's leadership is rarely given the credit it deserves. Women are underrepresented in local, national, and international government, and that is certainly also true in the peace-building activities of the Roman Catholic Church. Women are active, but women are not fully acknowledged. Um, in just a couple of seconds, I'm going to give you some examples of the things that I've been talking about, but I'd just like to mention that at the University of San Diego, there is an institute called the Kroc Institute, funded by the widow of the uh, founder of McDonald's. Um, and it contains within it something called the Institute for Peace and Justice. And that institute has a program for women peacemakers. The program uh, chooses four women a year to come from all over the world to San Diego. And um, at San Diego, each of these women is paired up with a writer, a peace writer, and a documentary film team so that she is able to express and then document her story and share best practices with other women. Uh, there are records of these women and, and of their stories on the website of the Kroc Institute at the University of San Diego. And this year, the women are from Kenya, Nepal, Moldova, and Colombia. Um, the woman from Colombia, whose name is Nancy Sanchez, I'll tell you a bit more in a minute. So now I'd like to give a few concrete examples. Um, and these are very limited. They're taken, again, from my limited experience with peacebuilding, which is mainly through an organization called the Catholic Peacebuilding Network. The Catholic Peacebuilding Network was formed in 2004 by the Croc Center at the University of Notre Dame. So this is a similar center to the one in San Diego, uh, funded also by Joan B. Croc, um, but it is at Notre Dame. And the Catholic Peacebuilding Network was formed uh, by the Croc Center, but also in cooperation with Catholic Relief Services, which, uh, as you may know, is an international uh, relief and assistance and development organization of the US Catholic bishops. The Catholic Peacebuilding Network is a network of academics and practitioners 
uh, but mostly practitioners, who seek to enhance the study and practice of Catholic peace building so religion can be a source for reconciliation, not as it unfortunately so often is, a source of conflict and division. The Catholic Peace Building Network aims to do uh, four things. The first is to engage scholars and practitioners together um, to um, connect what goes on on the ground, as they often say, with thought that's being done theologically um, and other kinds of academic thought, for example, from political science. Secondly, to identify best practices in peace building. Thirdly, then, to develop a theology and ethics of peace. That's where I came into the project. And fourthly, to enhance the peace building capacity of the church in conflict areas by sponsoring conferences, lending scholars, and again, bringing people together. The focus of these efforts is on three areas uh, which unfortunately have been the victims of longstanding conflict, but where the church, the Catholic Church, also has a role. And these three areas are the Great Lakes region of Africa, the Philippines, and Colombia. So um, the CPN, the Catholic Peace Building Network, invited uh, we theologians to conferences in these three areas. And I was able to attend the ones in Bujumbura, Burundi, and also in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, I went there as a theological consultant, and my task was to learn more about this network and its activities so that I could then participate in writing a big book on the theology of peace building. Uh, which came out in 2010. So, um, as I said, I did attend these two conferences, one in Colombia and one in Burundi. And I'd like to give you some examples from my visit to Colombia. Um, when we went to Colombia, first of all, we didn't meet only with people from Colombia. So, so peace builders from all these regions were at each of these conferences. So they traveled around and got to know each other, and the theologians then had a lot of opportunities to talk with many people. They also took us outside of the conference sites to site visits in the local community to really see work um, that CRS workers in particular were engaged with, and also the church in the local area. So uh, let me just tell you about a few of these in Colombia. So Colombia, as you may know or may kind of vaguely know, is uh, an ongoing site of considerable violence, really since the 1950s or 60s. And the violence involves groups that originally had political objectives, but now have become pretty much enmeshed in drug wars. So the money that has um, sort of uh, uh, flown into or, or streamed into these groups um, has, has come partly from and is feeding into the drug trade, and the profits from the drug trade give an incentive for the violence to continue and a disincentive for negotiation and the um, you know, establishment of peaceful conditions of living. So um, the, groups, the primary groups that are involved are, first of all, uh, something called FARC, which originally was a left-wing socialist political group um, its name stands for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Um, another is the ELN. Uh, in English, it is the National Liberation Army. Um, there are also various pa paramilitary groups, illegally armed groups. And then, of course, the government, which is trying to you know, stamp out the violence and uh, bring some sort of peace, more or less effectively at this point, I guess not too effectively. 
So one of the places that we went, and I'll start with a low uh, community level, uh, was to a barrio, a slum near Bogota. And we visited with a group of women called Hormiguitas de la Paz, which means little ants of peace. So these were village women who had been displaced um, from their homes, from their farms, and driven really into the city areas by the violence that was going on out in the rural areas. And once they came into the, um, into the city uh, seeking a place to live, not just the women but also their families, um, they became squatters on land that wasn't really being used or occupied but was in, in fact owned by uh, private individuals or private companies. So they had built, um, you know, uh, temporary encampments, uh, which amounted to sort of um, more or less permanent, not, not really permanent, but kind of ongoing uh, slum areas in the city of Bogota. And um, one of the things that they continued to suffer was, again, violence and threats of violence because these illegally armed groups would constantly go into the urban areas in the attempt to recruit young people to join up with their forces. But the young people were recruited by force. So there was a lot of violence, a lot of threat of violence, a lot of killings. And the women in this one area um, came together, they banded together, they networked, as I've said, and they began to create civil society. Uh, in this um, you know, operation or in this endeavor, they were uh, assisted by a couple of women religious. I remember especially the one that took our group around this barrio and introduced us to the women and the families. Her name was Sister Inez. And she was also a liaison be between the uh, Hormiguitas de la Paz on the one side and on the other side um, a Catholic foundation called Coro a Coro, which means uh, elbow to elbow. And that was wealthier Colombians who wanted to help the displaced peoples by um, funding you know, uh, efforts that they were making for a better way of life. So in this barrio, the women came together. Um, they formed women's cooperatives where they would help each other, uh, support one another, uh, help take care of the children. And one of the things that they did was they dug a one-room community center just out of the side of a hill. Um, and they managed to you know, create a space there where, again, people could meet relatively safely. It was a common space. It was something that they created on their own. It was very minimal, but again, it was a good example of civil society. So they were um, attempting to advocate for themselves, again, with uh, the help of some of the representatives of the local Catholic Church, but they were attempting to advocate for themselves against the, uh, against the local government. Um, for example, they were constantly threatened with eviction from the lands that they were occupying, but at the same time, they were being charged for municipal electricity because the wires were going across these lands. So the government was both benefiting and also threatening um, their occupancy of that area. To move up the ladder a little bit, or quite a ways up the ladder, I'd like to talk about the Catholic bishops in Colombia. So the Catholic bishops have actually been extremely active and again, at considerable personal risk in trying to mediate peace among all of these groups. In 2002, the Catholic Bishops' Conference put out a 10-point peace plan, 
but they didn't just put it out on paper on a website. They have actually been quite involved in negotiations uh, and local outreach. Um, they have supported various Catholic uh, women's groups and they have met with uh, leadership of some of these factions that I have told you about and also with representatives of the government. And I'd like to just tell you about one people that is, one person that is involved with uh, Bishop's um, peace efforts, uh, one individual to bring it down to the ground a little bit more. And his name is Father Dario. And he's actually the head of the Bishop's Conference's National Conciliation Commission. And um, John Paul Lederach, who is a Mennonite um, theologian and peace activist, uh, who works with the Catholic Peacebuilding Network. Uh, uh, in a chapter that he wrote for this peacebuilding book that I was telling you about, gave an example of one one-hour visit that he made to Father Dario's office. I also met Father Dario at this conference in Bogota. Um, but uh, John Paul was in his office one day for one hour, and during that hour, um, uh, Father Dario got, got three different phone calls from three different groups. So the first one was from the ELN, the National Liberation Army, and they wanted him to be their representative in going to a prison to talk to, to several people who were in prison with whom they wanted to be in conversation. So these people were representing other points of view or, or possible uh, you know, advocacy for the ELN. Um, but the ELN wanted help in going and making this contact, so they called Father Dario. The second uh, call was from a key paramilitary commander who was going through the process of demobilization. This is very risky, so the commander wanted to leave the group with which he'd been affiliated and return to uh, civilian society, if you will. Um, but that would bring considerable risk to his life because there would be uh, former associates who um, would not only not like but might be afraid of the role that this guy might play when he would uh, leave their, um, you know, leave their company and therefore he would be in danger of assassination. So um, this military commander, paramilitary commander, actually wanted Father Dario to go and be with him and to accompany him physically in the several coming days or weeks so that he would be protected from violence. Um, the third case was uh, some representatives from FARC, from the left-wing, formerly socialist um, group, and they wanted Father Dario to come and say a memorial mass for members of their families, their fathers, sons, daughters, husbands, who had been killed during the violence. So there were uh, a lot of people who wanted the um, support of the Catholic Church, not all of them innocent, of course, of blood on their own hands. And uh, when Lederach asked Father Dario uh, how he could really um, do this and you know what really kept him going, Father Dario said, we're trying to build Colombia uh, as a country in peace. To live out my priesthood, I must respond to the urgent needs of this country. How we get out of this armed conflict, that's what I need to do as a priest. And he said that, um, you know, when he has to dialogue with commanders, and in some cases, assassins who were really notorious, he, he asked himself the question, how do I look in the eyes of people and try to dialogue when they have destroyed the lives of so many? and so cruelly broken 
every sense of human rights. I asked them, how can you want peace and still carry a gun or keep someone kidnapped? And they say, Father, it's not me, it's the organization. I'm trapped. I follow orders. I want it over, but I can't. So I see the evil of the pattern, the institution, and yet I see the person as a human being. I speak as a minister of the church, asking them to respect others and to respect the pain of their victims. But of course, for Father Dario, and often for the bishops themselves who do this, going into the jungle to meet with armed actors, you know, unarmed oneself, and in a setting that is um, not of the bishops or the priest's choice and is very dangerous, is never an easy task. Um, Father Dario says that he does invite all of these people into mass, no matter what they've done, as long as they come without weapons. And he says you can reject the sin, but you have to be open to the person. So uh, clearly he does this at significant personal risk. So I'll give you just one more example, and this is of the woman peace builder that I mentioned before. Her name is Nancy Sanchez. And again, she's an example of someone um, who is willing to take risks for peace, personal risks, even when the outcome is very far from certain. Nancy Sanchez is a journalist who has documented human rights abuses and the survival strategies of everyday women uh, for over 20 years in Colombia. One of the things that she's done uh, in her time as a journalist is to um, go into morgues where people who have been kidnapped and tortured are kept to try to identify the bodies and make it possible for families to be at least um, knowledgeable about the fate and the whereabouts of their loved ones. She worked with a team of five other people, and three of those people were assassinated. So Sanchez then uh, moved from the area in which she was doing this in the countryside and moved to the region of Putumayo, which again is an epicenter of political violence and the illicit drug trade. And she and a Catholic priest, Father Alcides, worked closely with local leaders to highlight the effects of the war on the communities until, again, Father Alcides was killed by the group called the FARC, in fact, in front of his parishioners during Mass. Nancy Sanchez was undeterred and continued to monitor human rights abuses despite death threats. Eventually, she had to uh, leave the country temporarily but after a few years, she returned again and went back to Putumayo. And there she worked primarily with women, and she and her colleagues traveled on horseback, on motorcycles, in canoes, in jeeps, on unpaved roads, over mountains, and through jungles to hear the stories of women in remote areas um, and to offer workshops on human rights. At the end of the day, Sanchez says, my 20 years of experience as a human rights defender in various regions has given me the experience to assert that there's a great potential for women to transform their reality. The struggle for life is in the hands of women. Yet, as we look at these efforts and we are um, impressed by the tremendous courage that these peace builders have, 
Their stories also remind us how difficult, how tentative, how, how out of reach even actual peace may seem. In, in last July, in fact, which was already five years after I had visited Colombia and met with Father Dario, the bishops still at their plenary sessions, so last summer, had to be urging the government and making a, rev a resolution that the government of Colombia and the guerrillas resume peace negotiations that at the time were actually stalled. So progress seemed to be very, very slow in coming. When we look at these kinds of circumstances, um, we're confronted with something that we theologians sometimes think about as the Augustinian problem. So uh, St. Augustine was a theologian of the fourth century. Um, he talked about the contrast between the city of God and the city of the world, the earthly city. He thought that Christians should try to live by high Christian ideals, and they should be involved in worldly activities, doing the best they can to bring peace. But he also believed that while we hope for the peace of the reign of God, earthly peace is usually a mere semblance of the real thing. Though we're committed to expanding what he, Augustine, called the tranquility of order and well-ordered concord, we also have to accept that the libido dominandi, the lust for power, is irrepressible. And that politics, even politics as undertaken by Christians, is full of miserable necessities. He used that phrase or variations thereof repeatedly. It's full of vice and it's full of failure. The incidents and nature of war today urge a sense of Augustinian caution about the possibility of bringing incremental justice to the global political order. Although wars between nations have actually decreased since the 1980s, the wars within states have not. So-called societal warfare has actually increased since the 1950s, so that today it's the major form of warfare. That's why today at least 75% of those killed in war are civilians, compared to 5% during World War I. Even after conflict resolution, conflict resumes within five years, 50% of the time. Given these realities, the calls for peace, often found in Catholic social teaching, can sound unrealistic or naive. For example, as John Paul II said in his encyclical Centesimus Annus, war, never again. No, never again war. War is not always inevitable. It is always a defeat for humanity. International law, honest dialogue, solidarity between states, the noble exercise of diplomacy. These are methods worthy of individuals and nations in resolving their differences. We have seen uh, from the examples that I gave, however, that clearly the noble exercise of diplomacy is more often risky and even death-dealing than it is successful. Yet despite the reality that success in bringing peace is far from assured, many people actually living in desperate situations of violence or poverty do not in fact give up hope. 
They become activists for change. They appeal for the support of other Christians and of all who are committed to a more humane and just world. To Christians in Congo, Myanmar, or Colombia, or for that matter, Memphis in 1968, authentic Christian spirituality and discipleship require political action for a better world and also require a hopeful vision in which a better world is really possible. Um, it's easy. I guess one of the problems I'm dealing with in my own head and in my theological reflections and in this paper is that it's easy to talk about hope when we see the really inspiring examples of success. Uh, there's one that I love and that I actually wrote about in the book that I was just telling you about. It comes from the country of Liberia. I won't go on about it now. Um, but uh, during a time of violent civil conflict, uh, a group of women, the spearhead of, the, of their efforts was a Lutheran Christian woman named uh, Lema Gubowi, and she led other women in a massive peace demonstration and actually uh, brought the uh, tyrannical president of Liberia, Charles Taylor, and then rebel groups who were fighting him to the peace table, established uh, a peaceful settlement, and then that paved the way for the election, the democratic election, of Liberia's first uh, woman president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And uh, Lema Gabowi received subsequently the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, in her Nobel acceptance speech, so you know she had a successful experience, but violence actually still continues in Liberia. Violence against women and rape uh, actually still continue in uh, great numbers uh, in Liberia. So that's sort of the both-and situation. But in her Nobel acceptance speech, Lema says this, we must continue to unite in sisterhood to turn our tears into triumph our despair into determination, and our fear into fortitude. There is no time to rest until our world achieves wholeness and balance, where all men and women are considered equal and free. So my question is, uh, my theological question, where do people get this courage? Okay, what really brings hope, even in the face of defeat? One clue that I took uh, you know, a few years ago, and an answer that I thought was sufficient and then later came to realize that it wasn't, but one clue is in the 2007 encyclical of Benedict XVI called Space Salvi, and it's on hope. And he, he has a line in there that I've quoted many, many times, and it is, all serious and upright human conduct is hope in action. Okay. And so the first thing that this led me to realize is that there's a strong connection between taking action and hope. So even if you have very modest success, even if your success is um, very partial, uh, just coming together, taking that action, being together, and taking the first few steps, that's uh, an, an expression of hope, and it also leads to hope. So action really builds hope. But although action does give hope, the Pope's line doesn't fully address where hope comes from when the action is a failure. So what's really going on there? And um, earlier this year, 
I, I had a little bit more <laughs> insight into this problem when I was asked to write a reflection. I've been working with um, an organization called Jesuit Release Services, again, as a sort of theological assistant, if you will. And one of the things that we do is put up uh, short little pieces on the JRS website where a JRS worker in some country around the world will give a narrative of something that happened. And then a theologian will be asked to write a response. And so I was asked to write on a narrative called Accompanying Justice. But the thing about the story was that justice wasn't actually done. And I sat there with this and thought, OK, what am I supposed to write theologically about this? So it was a challenge. And the story wasn't about war and peace, but it's a very similar sort of situation that you can imagine in a court where, say, war crimes are being tried or a rape a perpetrator of, of a, a, a rape crime used as a weapon of war is being tried or there's some sort of a, 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 a trial or a decision-making pro process about giving uh, property back to peasants who have been kicked off their land. So um, any sort of a process like this could uh, stand in for the story. The actual story was about um, some JRS workers in uh, Santo Domingo and they were working with some young Haitian men who sold frozen yogurt cones on the street using yogurt machines that they took out for the day and had to bring back at night and turn in their earnings to the boss. And they were being exploited. They were being accused of keeping more money and not turning it all in. And a large, a huge amount, you know, 80% of the money that they made was being taken for them. Um, uh, by the boss, who, who was actually not a Dominican, he was from another Latin American country. And so the JRS workers accompanied these um, yogurt vendors uh, through a long process in a court of law or a, a court of hearing. And uh, during the process, they began to realize that the, um, the judge and the whole you know, thing was very much corrupt that there was money being exchanged uh, against the Haitian workers and that there was also a lot of anti-Haitian discrimination. So at the end of the day, the case really went nowhere. And not only that, but now the whole group of yogurt vendors was out of a job and they were unemployed. So things wound up even worse. And the JRS workers said at the end of their narrative, we felt miserable. After all those sleepless nights and with such clear, solid cases, we had failed to make any difference. And yet the young men we had accompanied thanked us sincerely. They told us that when we walked with them, they had felt safe, and that when they faced their employer and said the truth in front of a judge, they had felt some recognition as persons with dignity, even if their rights were not fully protected. If nothing else, we had given them that it had been worthwhile. So from this case, it became even more apparent to me that mutual recognition and respect for one another's dignity is the essential meaning of justice and the basis of all just laws and structures. When the laws and courts of Santo Domingo failed to vindicate the workers, they reinforced structures of injustice. But the faithfulness of the JRS members planted small seeds of justice that may grow roots reaching far and deep enough to erode those structures from below. Whatever the eventual societal outcome, 
JRS accompaniment had already created new community, nourished mutual respect, and lessened the suffering of being counted a non-person. But that wasn't enough, okay? I, I still had not reached, um, I, I think, a full appreciation, I probably have still not reached a full appreciation of what it is that really inspires hope. And so uh, with an undergraduate major seminar uh, this semester, I was reading a book that I actually had read many times before uh, by John Sabrino, and it's called Christ the Liberator. And one of the students in the class pointed out a passage that indeed was very striking. And in this passage, uh, Sabrino says um, that hope and praxis, that is hope and action, are not opposed. They very much require or can require each other. So that's sort of validating what the JRS workers said, that if you do something, you, you, you act, you practice for justice, then that helps engender hope. But Sabrino actually took it to another level, and that's what my student had called my attention to. He says, um, the praxis grounding hope is not only justice, it's love. And so Sabrino says, hope arises from love. And where there is hope, love is produced. Um, love, in the, in the sense that we're talking about it here, is not... Um, necessarily the usual connotation of an affective or emotional connection to the other person, certainly not just a feeling of affection. I think it, it really means what uh, John Paul II called in Solicitudo Rei Socialis, uh, a feeling of solidarity, which is not just a personal virtue, but even a social virtue. Um, so uh, solidarity is an active commitment to really take steps. And love in the Christian sense is not just an active commitment, it's a commitment that's willing to sacrifice oneself, that is to take risks. So in thinking about what Sabrino said, that love as well as action for justice is at the basis of hope, I realize that love in the social practical form of solidarity and a willingness to take risks really explains and describes very well what the action of these peace builders is. So in the stories of Father Dario or Nancy Sanchez or the, or the women acting together to try to build civil society in the slum in Colombia, uh, you can see a, a solidarity you can see reaching out to those who are on the other side. You see them taking a first, second, and third step, trying to respect the dignity of the other as a person, even though you know that may not be reciprocated, and that, in fact, uh, your willingness may bring you harm. So we see a reflection there of the love of the cross. And I don't mean in an excessively melodramatic way, certainly not a sentimental way, um, not a masochistic way, not a way that's looking for martyrdom, but simply the, um, the willingness to respect the other, even though the other may be an enemy, and to take the first step when the return step is far from guaranteed. Um, I'm getting a little bit short on time, so I'm going to um, maybe cut, um, cut some of this out and just move on. Um, I wanted to just spend, um, maybe just give you a, a couple of examples or spend a couple of minutes 
talking about ways we could even think of love as solidarity and risky, um, um, Mm, risky what? Risky peace building, you know, uh, risky political willingness to take steps. How we can talk at it, talk about it at the social and institutional level. So um, when we think of Nancy Sanchez and Father Dario, we see what it means at the personal level. But as a social ethicist, I also want to think about ways in which it can be institutionalized. Like what might that look look like, or are there any examples of that? Um, one of the first authors in Catholic peacemaking theory, so this is not the Catholic Peacebuilding Network, but someone who was writing about this even before, is an evangelical theologian named Glenn Stassen. And he has a book called Just Peacemaking, and in that he develops you know, 10 practices for building peace. And um, I won't go into all of those, but I just want to mention that one of the ones that he does stress is um, a policy of making the first move. So even if it's a national government or, or some sort of larger body or even an international policy, um, if you can put um, uh, sort of a, a presumption in favor of taking an initiative, so taking the first initiative in a peace-building process, um, when you don't necessarily already have cooperation on the other side, would be one example. Um, there's a, another author named Eli McCarthy who has a new book out, 2012, called Becoming Nonviolent Peacemakers. And he suggests even more radically uh, the possibility of um, uh, civilian peacekeeping uh, forces or even civilian defense forces that he talks about, where you would have a civilian population that would be unarmed and that might even attempt to reply to an, eight, an invading force nonviolently. So McCarthy describes civilian-based defense as involving massive civilian non-cooperation with invading forces and the formation of alternative sources of authority and government. Um, that, to me, actually sounds pretty unlikely because of the degree of public unanimity and resolve it re would require. But McCarthy points out that this has seen some historical realizations, including Norwegian and Danish resistance against German occupation during World War II, Czech resistance to the Soviets in 1968, and more recently, the People Power Revolution against the regime of Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos. So uh, in conclusion then, um, I see, or I hope we can all see, uh, peace building as a process that on the one hand is always marred by incompleteness, and that's something that we must accept. The wounds of war and human rights violations run deep. It's difficult to reconcile enemies, to establish social trust, to honestly face complicity and corruption, to make reparations to victims and overcome an ethos of impunity. Hope under such conditions, however, is inspired by courageous, compassionate love. Its social form is solidarity, expressed as willingness to risk the first step, even when defeat is possible or likely. The first manifestation and the first success of solidaristic action for justice 
is simply respect for the dignity of others. We see that in the example of the JRS workers and the yogurt vendors. This in of itself is sufficient to create hope, and hope nourishes and sustains further peace building. But that sort of praxis of solidarity and hope often must be inspired by something that's even deeper, and that is that uh, self-sacrificial impetus, not for its own sake, but for the sake of promise, of uh, progress, for the enjoyment and the realization that is even greater. Uh, the hope of, of a vision of existing in an envisioned reality that now we can only dimly glimpse. Peace building, then, is a practical strategy of hope. It can't always justify at the rational or political level why hope should exist. But through its practical actions, it can still build hope and make hope possible. Peace building demonstrates that uh, hope is still um, a reality uh, and a promise in the face of overwhelming adversity. Peace building is sustained by the actions of courageous individuals who resist oppressive and violent activities and aim um, to get past the, the behaviors and the attitudes and the cycles in which everyone else around them seems trapped. But peace building also requires the action of groups like the Catholic Peace Building Network and its member organizations whether they be Catholic Relief Services or local communities and churches or mosques and temples, all of which are also partners with the CPN. Peace building depends on moral and religious virtues. It aspires to real goods, especially the unity of all beings in the divine life, and consists most specifically in risky yet hopeful practices of change. Peace building strategies by reaching out to victims and to adversaries, even with ongoing violence, already recognize human dignity, build social capital, and shape the building blocks of justice, even if their short-term fate is defeat. Thus, even when there seem to be no rational or empirical justifications for the permanent cessation of violence, peace building is a practical strategy of hope for conversion, transformation, and justice. Thank you. Do we have time for comments? Have time for a few questions. No. I, I ask that if, if you need to leave, uh, please leave, because the noise that you make is very disturbing. Uh, so if you're going to stay, I ask that you stay to the end of the questions, okay? Which will be when, so they know. Uh, and, uh, we'll give 15 minutes for questions. If you can't stay the practical that, strategy of hope, then I recommend that you leave. Because the noise is very disconcerting. Okay. Um, so, no, I mean, questions are more than welcome, but I'm also Many of the points that you made, but just a few I would mention, which, um, 
She was at, she started this group of women because so much violence took yeah. place to their children and yes. their wives, right. chaos. But they dressed in white. Yes. And they walked 10 miles every day to the Capitol. And they stood yes. there yes. for something like 16 to 20 yes. years. And they confronted the authorities every day just by being there in their white clothing. So you yes. couldn't miss them with signs. And they were they would not be diminished. She was yeah. she was a strong, powerful yeah. woman. And she is. But she pointed out that they had nothing to lose. They had lost so much. And that the only way they knew that they could change things was to rise up as yeah. strong women. And they gave inspiration to other young women. It became a women's movement because yes. many of them had been significantly abused by the army, et cetera. And they wanted to confront the powers that be. And she finally won the day. They got tired of them and their demands being yeah. right outside the building, yeah. on the steps. Yeah. So that since, but that was long. You know, not many of us have that kind of yeah. commitment on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to bring that kind of change and transformation about. But she was such, she was so committed to yeah. that. It, it was remarkable, yeah. and you could see it yeah. in her life yeah. and in her being that she was not going to be turned back. Yeah. Um, it's just extraordinary. It's really, yeah. but again, I would just want to emphasize the number of years mm -hmm. that they put into that and the symbolism of wearing the same color. You yeah. could not miss these women. Yeah. And then every day they walked back. Yeah. I think um, I met some of the, I didn't meet her, but some of the other women that she worked with, one especially at a women's pe women peace uh, builders conference at the University of San Diego where they have these four women every year. And um, there's also a fantastic film, I don't know if you showed it, but that tells her story. It's called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And it only costs like $27. You can get it on the internet. I'm not getting any commission from the uh, filmmakers, but it's fantastic. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, reflecting on that film in the light of what I just said and what I've sort of been piecing together, like how does this really work? You know, what really does give people the courage to go on? And I think in their case, something that really came through in the film is that, as you said, these women were desperate. They, their, their children were being killed, they were being raped. I mean, they tell in the film some horrific stories of things that were done to women by the marauding forces, both of the <laughs> government and of the rebels. and. One of the things that they got, and I think one of the things that allowed them to carry on for so long, is that they, that gave them dignity and solidarity. So they weren't isolated, alienated, living in fear, um, coming together, and they had white t-shirts and white head wraps. Yeah. And they would, they would come and be together, and be together as women. And it was both the Muslim and the Christian women that, that joined in. And they, and in many cases, like they weren't really, you know, in communication with each other and didn't understand each other. There's friction between the two communities. But they really bonded because they had a common need to save their children and their families. And also, being there together in white gave them solidarity with one another. So uh, across these lines of division, but also reaffirming their own dignity, um, 
by taking action. So I think even in the process during which this was going on, there was that affirmation of their own dignity and self-respect and respect for one another, even when the conditions continued to be really bad. But it's an amazing story, it really is. And, and that's one of the ones that really gives hope because of the success, despite the continuing violence, even in Liberia. So, anybody else? Yeah. Um, I thought that it was interesting, we were talking about Father Dario and yeah. those three groups that called him. Yeah. I'm just wondering, did you feel like when you were there that these men that said, you know, that they're stuck, they're stuck in this yeah. group, and Father Dario said, you know, you can come to church without bringing your yeah. weapons. Did, did they feel that they could ever leave that group and have solidarity with the Catholic Church and be protected by the Catholic Church? Because it seems like each group wanted that recognition yeah. from the Catholic yeah. Church. I mean, the, the problem, well, first of all, I personally did not meet the armed insurgents. I only met people who came to the Conference of the Catholic Peace Building Network, so that's not the people who are out, you know, with, you know, assault weapons. Um, but, you know, but I did talk to personally and meet in small groups with and hear presentations by a lot of people working in Colombia who were working. Like we, we went to the bishops conference, for example, for one day. Many, many of the bishops are doing these same sorts of things. And so you got to hear them talk about what they were really confronting. And first of all, there's a huge sense of danger. Like, like the priests and bishops themselves are in danger, and they do get assassinated and killed. When I was in Burundi, one of the things that we had was a liturgy to celebrate the life of Archbishop Michael Courtney, who'd been assassinated because he was advocating for people against the government. So they're not out of danger. So the Catholic Church can't really protect all these people. But the Catholic Church, the bishops in Colombia, have credibility. Um, they have credibility. I, I'm not saying every single one or across the boards, you know, but there, there, there are certain of them that do have credibility with all these groups because they're working in good faith and they don't just advocate one side and they're sincerely working for peace and they're willing to take personal risks and they're willing to invest resources and they're willing to support people at the local level. So, uh, for example, the paramilitary commander that wanted Father Dario to just come and like be with him, which Father Dario really couldn't do because he had other things, you know, that would have been really dangerous. Um, and the fact that Father Dario was there would not necessarily have prevented an assassination, but Father Dario had more credibility. Um, that people would be more reluctant to kill him. But, you know, for that very reason, sometimes these leaders are the targets of the violence, like all the colleagues of Nancy Sanchez who were killed. So, you know, and, but that's what I'm saying, that these people take tremendous risks. It, and, you know, so one thing I just talked about quickly at the end, because I had to eliminate a lot of what I was going to say, I obviously went on too long, but it, it's, it's a lot harder to think of translating it into political forms, and there are some um, like even when I think back to the Cold War, the, you know, the no first strike policy was sort of an initiative of that type because you open yourself up to being struck first and not to heading it off. Uh, so it's sort of today in the whole political debate about should we attack Iran, not, hopefully not with nuclear weapons, you know, but that debate is over, you know, 
when is an attack justified and how circumspect should you be? So I think this sort of conversation might be part of that at the political level. And then Eli McCarthy showed a few other cases where this sort of nonviolent initiative has actually worked. But I think when we're talking really at the public, political, and international level, it's harder to see examples for obvious reasons. But I do think it's an area where the Catholic Church and other religious organizations, I'm not just saying Christianity, you know, where they have a more sort of overt, well-defined, and self-identified commitment to live by higher religious values and to take personal risks, that maybe they are agents who can possibly help um, um, uh, initiate and accompany efforts in the larger community um, toward uh, peace building. So, so they may have some power in helping the groups or helping initiate more peaceful relations, as you were just saying, but they do not have the power of protection. In fact, they themselves are vulnerable. And that's why they're so admirable. Yes, um, that point sort of speaks a little bit to my question. Um, so interreligious dialogue and practice are very important in peace building but a lot of the organizations or the systems that are being affected are these secular institutions, secular governments. Yeah. Um, do you think peace building is possible, but it can happen from a secular institution? Or do you think it has to come from this religious perspective? No, it does not have to come from a religious perspective. My subject is more religious peace building, but there's a lot of literature on peace building from many different academic areas. Uh, or from the U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, that would be another one, or from the U.N., I think, has a report on uh, peace building. So one of the things is, you know, so my interest is more, how does religious peace building fit into it? And in fact, a lot of peace builders coming from non-religious standpoints can be very skeptical of so-called religious peace building because religious leaders in local communities can often be the most divisive forces that are there. So um, what I'm emphasizing is the role of religion. But I, and I think religion does have a special role because it is committed frequently to taking the initiative, being willing to sacrifice, being willing to risk. But you do also find that in you know, sincere advocates for human rights uh, and for social reconciliation that come from different points of view. So I think you know religion is there, but I think as a theologian that God also works in other ways um, and is present in many of these sorts of efforts. Yes? I think it's important to recognize the risk. Um, for example, Catholic Relief Services considers yeah. peace building one of its core programming areas for the last 15 years or so. But we increase the risk when we go in and graft on a peace building program to people bishops and Catholics were already at risk by yeah. taking on governments yeah. or, or insurgents. Yeah. And so we have to be very careful about how we approach that. Yeah. So, so you're saying, like in Colombia, I think it grew up from within the bishops' conference. It wasn't brought in by some outsider that said, let's start a peace-building project. But you're saying, um, and you work with peace-building, with Catholic Relief Services all over, not just with peace-building, but work with CRS all over the world. Uh, coming from Pakistan, going to Liberia, so you, you know. Um, but you're making a good point, or, or if I take your point correctly, that if CRS, say, valorizes peace building, 
and says, well, here's a conflict area and here's the Catholic Church, so the Catholic Church ought to mount a peace-building initiative, that may expose the Catholic Church to even greater risk because they become a target of the armed combatants yes. that don't want any interference. And our sense that it is the right thing to do, and I do believe it is the right thing to do, is not always conversant with what's going on there. It yeah. doesn't always jive with how, yeah. how it's done there. Yeah. Your example of women standing for 16 years, yeah. you know, our funding lasts four, five, six yeah. years maximum for a program. So it takes time and commitment and that can only come from the actors themselves, yeah. not from us or any other yeah. NGO coming and saying, we think you should do this. Or this. I mean, I think, well, I, I don't have very extensive experience, obviously, and I saw more concrete examples in Colombia than in uh, Burundi, but one of the things that I saw, and of course I was selectively shown various things that the local church wanted to take us to, but there were a lot of cases of local communities being assisted in what they wanted to achieve by the resources of the local Catholic Church. Like the, the women in the barrio in Bogota would be a good example of that. Like they were trying to, to help them, uh, support them, and you know, give them a little bit more, um, well, resources, but also leadership or, or help. Not, and the leadership was actually coming from within the women's group, but Sister Inez was supporting this and then working with the leaders. So it wasn't coming in so much from outside as trying to identify what was going on and how could that be usefully supported. And our, our best role, I think, is, is helping organize and support financially or otherwise, technically, you know, these, these yeah. things to bring, to make people more professional at it. You yeah. know, or to be better at it, more effective. So, yeah. and that's a role for CRS and others, but not to come in and say, okay. yeah. Like, what would be professional aspects? I mean, this is something that uh, the Catholic Peace Building Network talks about, like best practices and so on. And I'm always a little bit skeptical that you know professional standards are going to be devised somewhere else or sort of universalized. It's, it's, we've had more failures than successes, you know, in doing this over the years. And we have a whole manual on peace building, how to do it, mm -hmm. what it looks like on the ground. Right, yeah. Um, but it doesn't always translate because people don't understand it and don't see results in, in the yeah. short time that we want results to happen. So I don't know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amalgam of, of different practices around organizational support, uh, financial support, training these kinds of things that we do. Yeah. Because some stick, some don't. Yeah. And does training, I mean, I, you know, again, my question would be, can you bring trainers in from, say, Notre Dame? Or do they have to be local people who know how it's done there? We do training of trainers. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll pick a, hand, a, a group and then train that. You know, but it should be, it shouldn't be all homegrown. It should be local. Yeah. That's what, or else it won't work. Yeah. So maybe people from other locales can share resources yeah. without seeming to be the out-of-town experts, which I'm sure would be a mistake. <laughs> we have to be careful of that. Yeah. Uh, yes. One more question. Your mention of John Soprino concretized something for me. He was the only survivor of the Jesuits in San Salvador. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's still astonishing to me that, that Oscar Romero is not canonized. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, it, it's a scandal. 
I'm sorry. Yes. And much less the Jesuits. They, even the Jesuits are not able to get their own understandings, which they're usually pretty good at. Um, it's a theological question. I mean, the, the few times that you talked about martyrdom, it, it, was, it was not as a resource. And yet, this was the nonviolent group in the ancient church. And it has always been the, the, the nonviolent confronting yeah. uh, and usually provoking violence mm -hmm. uh, against itself, but not seeking to do so. And I just wonder uh, if, if that's not a theological resource that needs to be developed yeah. to naming that, that, that the church is always super careful about siding with one group rather than the other, rather than recognizing the, the people who being, who, the, the, the witness that is being enacted. And this is one of the things that, that, that I mean, actually John Howard Yoder was better at naming this than, than most other people. Yeah, but I think one of the things that I wanted to stress and that I think is characterized, is characteristic of peace building and not of John Howard Yoder or the martyrs of the early church, is that peace building really is about changing social conditions. So, and that's, that was true of Romero as well. So being killed is a risk they're willing to take. No, and exactly to just saying. keep it in that perspective, I'm not saying that to talk about martyrdom is to deny that, but there's a sort of stereotype of, I'm going to stand up against the evil forces, I know they'll mow me down. Um, whereas in reality, Romero or the priest that was working with Nancy Sanchez or Michael Courtney in um, Bujumbura, uh, they weren't looking to be martyrs. They were lo looking to change the condition and to work with non-Catholics uh, and non-Christians and to work with the government in trying to build a better future, and they knew it was going to bring them danger, but they went ahead. No, that's exactly, that's exactly the way in which the theology of martyrdom works, is that you may not seek it. Yeah. It, 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 can, it, it, it is incurred, but the point is, is, is that the church, it, it is an because it is an institutional response. I mean, it makes a difference whom whom the a religious community recognize as their instances of the presence of the spirit in the world, uh, and and it's it's um, and I'm just I'm just suggesting that it might be somewhere something that you want to explore, yeah, uh, because it's not going to take the form it did in in, in another era. It, these yeah. things all take new forms, yeah, uh, but it, but it is an institutional response. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.